Hello, welcome back to our bonus episode of Knowledge on the Go, highlighting emergency medicine throughout the COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Marilyn Sherrill, and back with us from the University of Chicago Medicine is Dr. Tom Spiegel. Dr. Spiegel is the medical director of the emergency department. Dr. Spiegel, when I think back to a year ago, when we were meeting with our ED colleagues and discussing emergency medicine of the future, we certainly didn't see this pandemic coming. Tell me how your ED has had to adjust and prepare for the surge of COVID-19 patients. Yes, Marilyn, I I would certainly agree we did not see this epidemic coming. I I think virtually every aspect of the emergency departments throughout the country are being affected by COVID-19. In regard to our staff, I think the biggest thing that's affecting folks is the PPE. You know, anytime that you're doing something that could aerosolize and cause droplets to come out of the patient and spread to our staff, it's a high concern, and we really need to have a higher level of protection for our staff for those situations. There's also things that we have to think about and prepare our staff for in terms of just being around each other and social distancing. What about your break rooms? What about your hallways? In our break rooms, we have tape on the floor. We are only allowing five people into our break room at a time and they have to be six feet from each other. So all of these new uh, safeguards that we've had to put in place to protect our staff have certainly changed the way that we approach our job every day, not only in patient care, but just in being within the emergency department. What about the patients? Care for patients has has dramatically changed. I think most places, including our emergency department, we've divided out into a hot zone where we have any patients that have influenza-like illness, and we have our cool zone, which we try to have no COVID patients, at least We certainly don't put any influenza-like illness patients into that area. What's funny is that with the terminology we're using for our hot and cool zones, we're not using hot and cold. You know, we we recognize that the cool zone is simply that we don't think you have COVID. You don't have any symptoms of COVID, but it doesn't mean that you don't have COVID. And since we do have patients that go only to a cool zone, we're able to track how many of the patients without symptoms ended up having positive COVID tests. And it was not zero, unfortunately. So that's why it it is not a cold zone. It is is truly a cool zone. But we're seeing about a 4% positive COVID rate within the hundreds and hundreds of patients we've seen in our cool zone. Well, how did you handle the influx of patients who needed separation? When we first started planning, how will we respond to this influx of patients? We said, well, let's build a big tent outside. Well, This was back in late January, early February, and for anyone familiar with the climate of Chicago, late January, early February is is not a great time to be outside in a tent. So we were fortunate to have a a large warehouse space immediately adjacent, in fact, literally immediately adjacent. It was a, a space for future possible expansion. So we were able to facilitate an area that has socially distanced chairs for a waiting area, up to 80 patients. And we had three triage stations for nursing. And then we had three examination areas. Just within a five-day period, we were able to convert this large warehouse uh, into this care space by moving all the equipment, getting the electrical run, getting our networking data side run. We built four extra bathrooms for patients, and then we built a a locker room for staff, a a small locker room, but it was still nice to have a separate area for us to change. In effect, it was a very, very large tent that a lot of emergency departments have erected. We were fortunate enough to be able to do that inside and on a, on a larger scale. How do you identify a severe COVID case? What do you look for? Do they present differently? 
Sure. So what was interesting early on, you know, we knew we were being cautioned highly from others in China and Italy that this is a highly contagious disease, uh, droplet spread, some concern for airborne spread, but certainly droplet uh, was known. So any of our traditional approaches to respiratory support basically went out the window. You know, what would we typically do with the COPD patient? So let's say if you have someone come in with COPD, typical COPD exacerbation, well, they're going to be short of breath, likely coughing, and those right there are COVID-like symptoms. So even if it isn't a COVID patient, we don't know if it is or isn't at the door. We have to assume that this is COVID until proven otherwise. So a simple shortness of breath and coughing patient asthma exacerbation, COPD exacerbation, heart failure exacerbation, we have to assume these are COVID patients. How we approach them then is dramatically different. A year ago, you have an asthmatic come into the door saying, you know, I'm terribly short of breath. They, they, look, they look like they're struggling. You'd start them on a continuous nebulizer right off the bat. If you have a COPD patient, well, you give them some nebs and then you would do your steroids. You put them on BiPAP. This is what we did for years. We could no longer do those things. So we really had to take a step back. And I think the biggest thing that we were thinking, appropriately so, wasn't necessarily about that individual patient. It was about the staff supporting that patient. So the treatments that we had always gone to, the nebulizers, your BiPAPs, we couldn't do those anymore because that could aerosolize some of the droplets carrying virus and it could spread it amongst our staff. And we couldn't take the risk of infecting our staff and then not being available to treat future patients. So these traditional and just reliable methods of approaching patients had to go out the window and we had to say, well, what else can we do? What else should we do? What did you find that was important to do differently? Was there anything particularly effective the early guidance that nearly every hospital that I'd spoken to adopted consistently across the board was if a patient needs more than five liters of oxygen from a nasal cannula, anything beyond that can cause turbulent airflow and can aerosolize some of those droplets, some of that virus into the air, infect your staff. We simply were not going to take that risk. So if patients were hypoxemic, their oxygen levels drop below 92 and certainly into the 80s, and you're on high, uh, five liters of nasal cannula, that's not enough oxygen, we move straight to intubation. The intubation had the benefit of being able to sedate the patient, to secure the airway, and to have that balloon and that endotracheal tube inflated so that we basically we protected the airway. You put the patient on a ventilator that has a HEPA filter, so you've protected the air, you've secured your airway, you're getting them oxygen, and you're protecting your staff. And that combination seemed like a very reasonable approach, and that was the standard approach right from the start. If you need more than five liters, you intubate the patient. And kind of what I've just gone through is, is are the whys behind it. So how that evolved was then, in very short order, as we didn't want to intubate patients right off the bat because we saw the outcomes from China and then from Italy, that once patients are intubated, there's a lot of secondary detrimental effects of the intubation on the lung tissue that's already inflamed and already infected with COVID. And then you also have your secondary muscle atrophy and muscle wasting up in the ICU. And patients on ventilators with COVID-19 were having very, very bad outcomes. Those high mortality outcomes were actually substantiated. Not even a month ago, there was an article that came out in JAMA that talked about 
the 5,700 patients that were treated inpatient in the New York hospitals with COVID-19 and the high rates of mortality, and especially in the geriatric population over age 65, it was just a terribly high, like 97 plus percent mortality if those folks with COVID-19 over age 65 are intubated. So you're suggesting we do what we can to avoid placing the patient on the ventilator? So we thought working with our intensivists, they've always taken an approach of, they they call it prevent the vent. You know, what can we do to prevent ventilating patients? We call it the happy hypoxemic, that if the patient looks good, and even if they're in the 80s, upper 80s, and a couple months ago, we would say they're in the upper 80s, they're on five liters, we have to intubate them. If the patient's talking to you and they're, they're not breathing at a high rate of speed, we would leave them at five liters and we would watch them closely and see how they do. And most times it wasn't enough. Then we said, well, what can we do in terms of high flow oxygen? So we did plenty of research on what happened in prior respiratory infectious disease processes with high flow how much disease was spread, and it turns out that it wasn't significant. So we adopted the approach of using high-flow nasal cannula in order to prevent intubation. And in doing so, the very first step was protecting our staff. So we started with one room that had an anteroom so that our staff can put on and take off their PPE in a clean area. And then the high flow machine that is possibly aerosolizing some of that virus is being kept in a negative pressure room. And everybody entering that room has the appropriate PPE for an aerosol generating procedure, which is basically an N95 mask. At that point, then we started seeing our intubation numbers coming down and these patients did extremely well. So two months ago, we would have intubated many, many patients that today we're putting on high flow. And over the past month plus that we've been doing this, there have been over 60 patients that we prevented intubations for who, based on numbers alone from prior studies, would have had very negative outcomes when they're in that state of respiratory distress, needing additional oxygen, instead of intubating and having a poorer outcome, we've kept them on high flow nasal cannula and avoided intubation in the vast majority of these patients. So can you explain to me how high flow nasal cannula differs from oxygen delivered through the standard nasal cannula? Is there a mechanical component? Sure. There's actually a couple different things. Uh, It's equipment related mostly. So your typical nasal cannula, you have the tubing goes right from your spigot on the wall or the spigot on an oxygen canister. Let's just say the wall for simplicity. When you plug in your tubing into the wall uh, and you put the little prongs on the nose, you can deliver up to 15 liters of oxygen. Now, the concern again is that anything over five liters may be causing turbulence within the nasal passages and can aerosolize some of those droplets that are carrying the virus. So what's different about high flow nasal cannula is that instead of going right from the wall into the nose, which is your typical nasal cannula, that tubing goes into an air and oxygen blender. It's basically like on the wall, when you plug it into the little flow meter, you can dial up or down your level of oxygen that's being delivered. And it's uh, your air oxygen blender is basically that same thing, it's, it's a, but it has a faster flow. So that enables you to use even up to 100% oxygen at a much higher rate. So that alone, if you were to simply put that on your nose, you'd just be blown away by cold air blowing right up your nose. So that's not the end of high flow. High flow continues then by going through at a fast rate through tubing that then goes through a humidifier and a warmer so that the air is humidified and then it's warmed as it's delivered to the patient. The patient prongs then aren't the typical nasal cannula prongs that are being used with uh, just the wall oxygen. 
they're longer, uh, they're more pliable, so they go deeper into the nose and then they create a bit of a better seal so that not as much airflow comes back out through the nose. So basically, you're delivering faster oxygen that's warm and more comfortable for the patient deeper into the nose, and then it fills the passageways all the way into the lungs at a higher rate so that we're able to wash out all the nitrogen, wash out all the other uh, types of air, and deliver more oxygen down deeper into the lungs. That's really interesting. I also think that you were using continuous positive air pressure helmets or CPAP. Can you explain how this works and how you determine when you would use this instead of the high flow nasal cannula? Sure. So at University of Chicago, up in our intensive care unit, some of the intensivists up there have done research on these CPAP helmets in the past. In fact, several years ago, they had publications that described the success of being able to use these helmets in order to not aerosolize any type of any droplets while providing continuous positive airway pressure. So when we send our patients, when we start them on high flow in the emergency department, we send them up to our intensive care unit. They'll then evaluate to say, hey, do we need more airway support? So if patients start to fail on the high flow oxygen, and by failing, I mean they're just getting tired, their respiratory rate doesn't come down, and you can't continue that for long before you tire out, or if your degree of hypercapnia increases, then we need to get, uh, we need to give you more respiratory support. One of the options then is to use these helmets. And basically what it is, it's a helmet that goes over the patient. And on the bottom of it, there's a rubber area that we cut out. We measure the patient's neck and then we cut out a bit smaller than that, a hole that then adheres to the patient's neck, you know, gently, but securely with this rubber stopper basically to prevent any air from coming out. And then there's a couple of ports going in. There's a port going in and a port coming out of the helmet. One delivers oxygen and one is your exhalation port. On the exhalation, as the air leaves that helmet, then we can put the HEPA filter to make sure it's safe for our providers. And then there's also a PEEP valve that could be adjusted to increase the pressure within the helmet. And that's what then gives additional PEEP and additional airway support, that continuous positive pressure for the patient to be able to deliver a bit more pressure down into the lungs. From an operation standpoint, I can tell you that from where we stand today, we've had 60 plus patients on high flow nasal cannula in the emergency department. Those 60 patients would have been intubated without a question. The vast majority of those patients have not been intubated. So not only not in the emergency department, but we've been following them along in our intensive care unit as well. The vast majority of them have done extremely well. For either of these methods, do the patients have a difficult time using them? It appears the helmets would be a bit claustrophobic. What's been the initial reaction? That's a great question. From a patient perspective, and that's always something that we should be asking, right? How do patients feel on these things? So from the high flow standpoint, we've received a great deal of positive uh, feedback. Despite the higher rate of oxygen flow, it's warmer and it's moist, so it's far better tolerated. And patients, once they're on it, just even for five, 10 minutes, they're visibly calmer. Their respiratory rate generally starts to come down because they're getting the oxygen, their body's getting what it needs, and that drive to increase your respiratory rate to get more oxygen, that starts to get satisfied and they start to relax. So I think the patients that I've had and that I put on high flow, they look better, they say they feel better, and it's not an uncomfortable situation. Again, if you were to put that rate of delivery on just nasal cannula, they would be hating it because it would be terribly uncomfortable. Now, as far as the CPAP helmets go, what the reports I've gotten back from patients and from uh, those who manage these patients include that it feels like you're on an airplane where there's just a, a bit of pressurization in the atmosphere and you can feel it. 
but it's not uncomfortable. It just has that fullness sensation uh, again of being on an airplane. And to make it a little bit even more comfortable, the helmets do have a third hole that allows patients to be able to drink and to be able to have, if they have an NG tube or any of those additional supplements within their care being delivered, they could still have that. And if they're awaking and talking and, and able to, to drink, then they actually could take a straw through that area and get some nutrition that way. Well, that's interesting. So are either of these options contraindicated for patients who come in with other comorbid conditions? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say no. For the most part, as long as the patient is awake and not altered in any way and can cooperate in the care, then there's no contraindication to these. In fact, in our new post-COVID world, until we have vaccines and herd immunity, and can start to let our guard down, I think that these are great tools to build into some of the early stages of care. Because again, with a COPD patient, if they come in short of breath and coughing because they have a COPD, you don't know if they have COVID or not because COVID can present the exact same way. So in taking care and taking caution for our staff and to protect other patients in that same care area, we have to be cautious. And I think that these implements are tools that people can reach for with appropriate PPE in order to better care for these patients with these other comorbid conditions. So what are the drawbacks, if any, to the treatment options? How come everybody isn't doing this? First thing I would say is concern for staff safety, which is not insignificant. Having the systems in place to ensure their safety is, is probably the biggest concern. And in fact, I would argue that's a higher concern than uh, is the patient care concern. Because once your staff goes down, you're not caring for anybody. So we, we have to protect each other. I think the other big drawback is that it is different equipment. Early on, every day, we talked about our ventilator capacity and how many ventilators do we have available. That was reported out every day. After starting high-flow nasal cannula up not only in the emergency department, but also in the intensive care unit, that report out then included how many high-flow units do we have available every day. So keeping an eye on that additional equipment is another key component COVID-19 certainly is a scary disease, and it seems like we're learning more and more about it every day. Tell us what you've learned and what other advice or lessons learned you could share. I think that this, the recurrence of a surge is, is going to happen, especially as any of the stay-at-home orders are lifted. I think we're going to see more exposures. We can expect to reasonably see an increase in this disease process again. So I think what I would tell folks to consider the safe implementation of high-flow nasal cannula if you're not doing it already. So to uh, prevent the vent, to borrow that term from our intensivist colleagues, I think is, is a great service to your patients. And doing it in a safe manner is, uh, to protect your staff is important. And asymptomatic carriers is a whole nother area. They're, they're real. So your hot zone is your hot zone, but your cold zone is not necessarily cold. It's more of a cool zone and to main maintain PPE for your providers up in that area as well. I wonder how this is going to impact the future of emergency medicine. How do you think working in the ED will change after this year? I think that Within emergency medicine, what we've seen over the past few months is that volumes have gone down. But if you think about the disease processes, they haven't gone away. You know, heart failure is still there, heart attacks, strokes shouldn't have gone down. In fact, you could argue that they should have gone up with the increased stress of the stay-at-home orders uh, and the social distancing. What we have seen is that care in the emergency department has been, to a, a large extent, shifted towards the life and limb threatening care 
that many emergency medicine providers like providing. Moving forward, I'm curious to watch where the lower acuity visits go from the emergency department. And if they go more towards telemedicine, I think as long as we're providing quality care to the patients at a lower cost, I think it's, it's a great thing for everybody. It will be very interesting. Dr. Spiegel, thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights for the care of the COVID-19 patients. I would also like to thank you and all frontline healthcare workers for your dedication for caring for these patients and all patients each and every day. My hope is, and I'm sure it's the hope of everyone listening, is that you all continue to stay safe and in good health. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at knowledge transfer at vizianinc.com. From the PI Collaborative and Knowledge Transfer teams, I'm Marilyn Sherrill. Remember, knowledge is transformational. Share it. Thank you.